Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Today's guest may be most recognizable in the whitetail space. He grew up in the bluff country of southeast Minnesota, where he became obsessed with everything outdoors. He spent all of his extra time bass fishing, turkey hunting, upland hunting, and of course deer hunting. Tony Peterson took his love of deer hunting and eventually turned it into an outdoor riding career, a profession he kicked off in his mid-twenties after becoming the associate editor for Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine. Later he earned the role of equipment editor for Bowhunter Magazine and Bowhunter TV. In more recent years, Tony joined up with Meat Eater to produce content, including articles and podcasts under the Wired to Hunt brand, as well as shows like Back 40 and One Week in November. Listeners will likely know of Tony if they are into whitetail hunting public land, as he was one of the pioneers that thrived at killing big bucks on public ground. He has arrowed a pile of good bucks on public ground in multiple states and is considered one of the nation's top authorities on hunting pressured deer. But that's not why we have him here today. He also happens to be one hell of a turkey hunter. With countless shotgun and bow killed turkeys to his credit, he's a wealth of knowledge on calling longbeards, especially longbeards that have received a lot of hunting pressure, which is what we're going to get into today. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thanks for having me, man. How's everything going? Uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'm getting ready for turkey season, so that's uh, always exciting. How's uh, the, the spring shaping up where you're at? You know, it's uh, coming in real slow, but we're getting there now. And, you know, my my focus right away is always to get my little girls. I have twin 11-year-old girls, and they're turkey hunting fools. And so we scout and get ready for them hard. And then once once they fill their tags, then I start to play around a little bit. But that's that's always my focus now. Do you guys have a youth season there where you're at for the girls or... Uh, you know, in, in Minnesota, we don't, they just, they get to hunt the whole six weeks of the season. Uh, but I do take them over to Wisconsin where they have a weekend. That's nice, a youth. Nice. So nice. 
So Wisconsin and Minnesota this year, you have more on the, the docket for turkey hunts this year, just those two states. Uh, for the girls, those two states and myself too. And then I'm going to, I'm going to head down to Nebraska and I also drew an Iowa tag this year. Nice, so nice. I've, I got a few tags. You'll be, you'll be busy. <laughs> nice. Nice. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, sounds like diehard deer hunter, but, um, just as much a turkey hunter is, is, uh, deer. A- absolutely. And it doesn't, I don't, you know, I'm going down to Iowa. I'm hunting public land down there. I'll be scouting deer, you know, the Nebraska thing, I'll be scouting deer. So it's, it's always, yeah, you know, the primary focus is, you know, kill a few long beards, but it's time in the woods, man. Like I just love it. And I'm always checking out new spots and turkey season's so good for, you know, kind of taking a flyer weekend and going somewhere. Cause you never know, you might find something worth going to deer hunt. Yeah. Yeah. But I love, um, this Kansas piece we always talk about going there to the turkey hunt is just as much fun, you know, getting ready for the fall deer hunt. If I'm lucky enough to, to, to grab a tag because you get to go into some areas, um, that he won't let you in, uh, you know, during, yep. during deer season. So you get to check some things out and learn the lay of the land and, you know, maybe, maybe give you some tips on where you're going to, you know, set a stand or where you should set a stand. So no, I, I really like it, but, uh, yeah, no, I'm excited for spring. Got Kansas, um, I've got Washington, and then Idaho as well. So I'll have three. Oh, days. nice. Yeah, nice. So, yeah, like every episode, we are going to start with some listener questions. And if you have questions uh, for my guests or for myself, please email them to us at ctd at phelpsgamecalls.com or uh, shoot us a, a social message or anything like that, and we'll try to get them on here. So the first question for you today, Tony, is defining a roost tree. We got a question a guy was wanting to know, you know, there's trees everywhere in, in the woods. Yeah. How do you define a roost tree or what makes an ideal group of roost trees? You know, it, that really depends what part of the season you're looking for it. You know, if you, if it's an early season thing, you'll find that true turkey roost where it's, it's someplace, you know, it's going to have big oaks or some kind of big tree and it's going to have some kind of terrain advantage, you know, where they can fly off, where they can tuck away from the wind. And then as the season progresses and it gets a lot nicer out, that survival you know, they're not worried about freezing to death up there. They don't need as much protection. And so they'll spread out, but you know, I mean, always it's droppings, it's scouting is huge, you know, looking for those, those spots. And then, you know, I, I always tell people one thing you notice, especially in, you know, maybe like the first half of your season, you know, if you have a roost, even if it gets blown out, what you'll see those birds do, especially when they're flocked up is if you have nasty weather come in, like we get a lot of fronts in the spring in different places, those birds are going to roost somewhere where there's a, there's a real advantage to getting out of the wind. And so you think, you know, you get a crazy east wind or something, and you're like, oh, they're going to be roosted where they're always roosted, and then you go there, and that wind's blowing that up. They're going to be somewhere else, yep. and you can almost call your shots. You can pull up Onyx and look at it and go, okay, they could tuck in here and be out of that wind all night long. You'll find that. I mean, you see that in so many places. Yep. Yeah, and that's – I mean, you don't want to be – too obvious but you know you got your scat you got your feathers in, in those areas um you know and the best way as you mentioned is just to scout it you, you know locate um you know we we learn of, of most of our roost areas just by locating at nighttime you know getting ready and they're like oh they're in these same areas time after time and, and it's different though even different subspecies you know you go to the the midwest and if you're hunting easterns they seem to want to come back to a set group of trees as long as it it, it checks all the box you know out of the wind um, a lot of times those roost trees are just off of a ridgeline. They can walk up the ridgeline or walk, and then they can pitch down to the tree without having to do a bunch of like laborious flying up. Um, and just being off of that ridge, as you had mentioned, keeps them out of the wind. So um, big, heavy limbs, they don't like to be shook around. So it's like, you know, it, it's, it, I guess we're talking about what they typically like to be in. They can roost anywhere, right? But, but typically they like to be in those bigger trees, bigger you know, oak trees, big limbs. 
Um, they're not getting shook around near as much. And then when I go to hunt Merriam's round home, those things literally just roost where they end up. But similar, you know, they're they're staying out of the wind, but they they they're they're not as likely to come back to that tree night after night after night. Yeah, I, I've seen it. You know, easterns like you mentioned, I've seen Rios be real consistent too. But man, it's you know, like the first part of it is finding all those droppings under there where you're like, yeah, clearly they spend some time on that limb and that yep. limb. But if you get a way to watch them, if you you know if you can get out in the morning and listen for them, whatever, that's great. But if you can watch them in the evening, approach it. It's so valuable. See how see how they actually work their way in, and then you know, okay, if I if I get in there where I would want to set up, they're going to see me because they're going to have a visual advantage a lot of times. So being able to watch turkeys is so huge. Yep, yep. So listener question number two: uh, I'm new to turkey hunting, and I can only take one week off to hunt, um, which is a little nuanced, right? We we talked a little bit before the podcast because some seasons have already been going for over a month, you know, down south. Um, some of our Northern states, a lot of states open on like an April 15th opener, you know, some youth seasons mixed in there. Um, so we'll have to, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but, um, in your opinion, kind of what's the best time to be out there. If you had to pick like a one week, if, if I'm hunting a place that nobody else can go into, give me the first week. If I'm hunting a place where, you know, I might be the third one in line. I always try to time it around like a real green up because you know, the flocks are going to split up. You know, those hens are going to go start eating bugs and some fresh greenery and those toms are going to follow them. And then if you can time it, you know, for years in Minnesota, one of my favorite times to hunt was when the walleye opener happened. Nobody wanted yeah. to, you know what I mean? And yep. you see that in other states. So there's, it's kind of, turkey season a lot of times sort of follows the the deer season, like at least the bow season pattern where there's a bunch of activity right away, and then it kind of dies down. And then as the clock starts ticking toward the end, you'll see people start to get back out. And so there's there's usually middle ground there that you can find. Yep. And, and I'm similar to you. I, I love hunting that first week. If you had, if I had private, I'd be out there that first week for sure. You know, uh, I think your likelihood of calling those toms in is way better, but in Washington, public ground hunting, like we do, you get a week of every single chunk of public ground is occupied. And then if you go the second, even into the third week, you're kind of in that hind up phase where everything's locked down. Sometimes they won't gobble. They won't, they just, they will not come to a call on you. So you're kind of fighting that. I've always liked in Washington, like May 10th, um, it's getting pretty late in the season, but we're starting to get the majority of our hens bred and on eggs all day and away from him. And so, and that's, to be honest, no matter what, you know, if you want to kill the three or four year old birds, like I've always felt like mid May for us in Washington, um, is some of your best timing. It's just the, those birds are lonely after nine o'clock and, uh, you know, you got them all to yourself. So, yeah, that's a, that's a big thing when when you're talking, you know, it used to be just like everybody's like, oh, I got to kill my bird off the roost. And it's like that lunch shift is when those birds go looking. And yep. especially when you're talking May, yep. you know. Yeah, you might not, you have to push through a little bit more. You're not going to get probably as much goblin, as much action at times. It's a, Things have slowed down a little bit. But man, as far as like likelihood of harvesting a, a more mature bird, um, later is good. So I, I guess we didn't really answer that question wholeheartedly, but it, it's just there's always good times to be out there. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I don't know if there is a perfect week to be out there, but yeah, like you said, if, if no pressure early for sure. Um, you know, we just completed our a Washington youth season and guys were just mopping. Yeah, you know, they, they were, it was just great. Um, these birds haven't heard calls yet. They're super callable. And then, you know, it's going to progressively get slower as, as season. Yeah. Know, well, out. I mean, that's a, that's another good point for somebody who's just starting out. How, how confident are you in calling? Yeah. You know, cause if you can get out there and, and, really call right away you got the most birds to work with that haven't been pressured that's a good time to go but 
you know, you gotta, you gotta have some confidence in yep. what you're saying. Yep. Yep. For sure. Um, and then our last, we, we got a third uh, listener question here in our last, um, so a new hunter wanted to know, can sitting sign be effective, um, or productive? Um, and, and once again, I think we need some more information, but I'll go ahead and let you answer and we'll, we'll add on to it. hundred percent. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I only bow hunted turkeys for like 10 years. I kind of went through that phase and you know, when you're committed to a blind in an all day sitting a spot sign is everything. Like yeah. I want, I want to know they're using a spot for some reason. And we're kind of, we're kind of used to thinking about turkey hunting is like, just get out there, listen for a gobble and go. Yep. But you know, unless you have a lot of land to roam, like that's maybe not the, the best strategy in a lot of places. And turkeys are so patternable. I mean, it, they, it feels like it gets wild, kind of like the whitetail rut. Like you're like, Oh, they're just all over the country. No, there's a method to their madness. Mm-hmm. And toms are super predictable, and so are hens. And so, if you've got a place where they're scratching, you know, if if they were there today at ten o'clock, they're going to be there tomorrow yep. at ten o'clock, unless yep. something blows Disturbs, them off. Yeah, as long as they're not disturbed. Yeah. Though. So, I mean, and, and the thing is, you got to think. Okay, well, you're, the easiest place to find sign is out in the open, right? Like on the ag fields or whatever. And you know, that's great. But I look at it and go, I want that, but I want to know where they're looping through the woods on a circuit, where they're scratching somewhere yep. that's in the cover that's not so obvious. And you start piecing those together, and then maybe you've scouted those roosts like we talked about. Yep. Now you're like, okay, I, yep. I've i got places to be, and then you just got to give them time. Yep, and and I, it's kind of funny. I never – every year we go through this progression where I don't relearn that until about day three. You try to go in. You try to force your plan that wherever that bird's at and wherever you're set up, you're going to call it to them. And then by day three, you're like, all right, this is obviously – you know, it, it may work, but it's not working as effectively. Like we know the pattern of these birds. Let's not force this whole call scenario to us. Let's just go. And, and it's way more effective. And, and I'm saying this is a guy that loves to call turkeys and, and makes a living, you know, selling calls for turkeys, but patterning, you know, it's, it's almost like the ambush style on elk hunting. I'll, I'll always say that you're going to be way more successful in calling that bull in if he's already doing what he wants to do and only has to come a little bit versus like make them do what they don't want to do. Yeah. Every animal, yeah. man. And it, I mean, that's a, the turkey thing, when you're talking about sign and calling, it's a proximity thing. You know, just like with elk, you're like, if you're a hundred yards away from a bull, he's a hell of a lot easier to call in than if you're across the canyon. And turkeys are the same way. Yeah, they're going to answer you. But if you're where they expect turkeys to be and you're you're damn close to their route, it's totally different game. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that wraps it up for listener questions. Once again, if you have questions of your own for me or my guests, uh, please email us at ctd at phelpsgamecalls.com and we'll do our best uh, to include them. So now we're going to jump into some of my questions I had for you. Um, Just some conversations, some things we haven't really touched on. You know, we can kind of get stuck in this rut of like regurgitating and like just having that circular conversation. There's only so many things you can talk about turkey hunting. So we're going to jump into maybe some of the oddities or some stuff we haven't talked about um, on some of the past uh, turkey episodes. So um, one thing we just kind of mentioned, some of the things it takes me till day two or three to figure out, but every spring you go out and you start to, you know, you hear your first gobble and you're like, shoot, you know, whether you're in Eastern Washington, whether you're in Kansas, how far away was that thing? Like, can I go another hundred yards? Do I need to sit down here? It's one of those real difficult things to figure out. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, factors that, that factor into, to, to a gobble, but do you have any tips for anybody going out there? Like how aggressive can you be? How, you know, uh, what's the best way to gauge that? 
Man, my hearing sucks. I have so many guns and guitars in my day, <laughs> but I'll say this, especially for newbies, if they sound close, they're really close. And if they sound far away, they might still be close. And so I, I get real cautious because if you go running, gun and chasing gobbles when they're lighting up, I mean, you're going to learn that you're going to bump, you're going to bump them. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and so, and, and sometimes, you know, especially if you spend, it's different for me when I'm scouting birds and I'm photographing them. Cause I'm not, I don't care about getting in to kill them. So it's like, I learn a lot about how far away they are and how far they sound. Cause I'm not making, I'm not in that hunter mindset. I'm just observing and man, there's so many times where they sound far away and they're just not. Yep. And so I'm always like, you know, I, I know everybody wants to sprint across the countryside and get 75 yards away and, and set up, but I always just assume they're closer. And I always assume that if I go sneaking in on this bird, unless I've got like an obvious, like if there's a bluff or something and he's on top, like they're going to see me better than I yep. think. And even with the woods greened out and everything. So I'm, I'm pretty cautious that yep. way. And I'd rather, especially, you know, if they're sounding off and you can throw an owl hoot at them or something, it's like, you don't have any reason to go rushing, like yep. work it out a little bit. And you almost can guarantee that if there's a bird gobbling at you there, he's probably not alone. I mean, you might've run yep. into that two-year-old it's, or whatever, like they might be alone, but a lot of times they're not. And so you're now you're working in on not just multiple sets of eyes. Exactly. Yeah. And and one of the things like the biggest eye opener for me is is you're working a bird, as you mentioned. But we've I don't know if everybody's been there, but I've been there multiple times where we're on the edge of a field and there's a bird out there two hundred yards away. And that thing sounds if he gobbles away from me and then turns and gobbles at me, like I would have just lost all kinds of money on on how far I thought he was. But it's literally you know, maybe a three X magnitude in difference on, on what I thought that distance was just if he turns and gobbles the other way versus gobbles towards me. So I've already got that against me. Now we've got, if he did that same thing and the wind was at his back versus in his face, it, you know, what's the wind doing where I'm at? Um, you've got foliage, you know, early in the spring, gobbles are going to travel a little bit farther as it starts to really green up and get thick. And, and now, you know, so all of these things play into, but I think you hit the nail on the head earlier with your comment of you just always play it a little more cautious. There's if he's gobbling, he's obviously still there. And um, as long as he's still there, you have a chance versus if you go and bump him and spook him, you're now dealing with a, a you know, a buggered up bird real hard to deal with at that point. Once him or his hens get, you know, spooked, it's, it's going to be tough. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think in that situation too, a lot of people talk themselves into going cause they'll have that bird that'll, it'll hit them every time, but he's not coming and they get impatient and man, I mean, you can kill them that way, but I always look at that. I'm like, if I have a wild turkey talking to me, I'm doing just fine. And, yep. and you know, how, you know, it's kind of like elk, like, you know, sometimes there's just one that slips in from somewhere else or suddenly they just come in. And so if you've got one and you're like, oh, he sounds like he's 200, 250 yards away. I'm like, man, if he's calling to me, unless I have a real terrain advantage to get closer, I'm like, I'm just going to work him until yep. he makes the decision. Yep. Yeah, and then you start to throw in ridges and like open ridge tops and you know up and down that turkey's moving or he turns around. It just it becomes very difficult and um no matter how good you are at it, you're you potentially could get it wrong unless you can really read the situation. So um just yeah, always be cautious. I think it's a safe play and, and approach with caution. Well, and that I mean that's one of the things I've been writing about this a lot lately is the better you get at calling and the more confident you get, the less you feel that pressure to just put yourself as close as you can. You know, I mean, when you talk about a bird like that, you know, you, you run into that a lot with pressure birds. If you hunt a lot of public land birds, you'll get those birds that just hang up. They'll tell you where they are, but it's like, 
you really got to give them something special. And so if you can work two calls at one time, you know, make it sound like two hens meeting up and cutting hard and, or just give them something different. Sometimes that's all you need to break them to you, but just going to them is so often that does not go well. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, once again, just be cautious. Um, and, and then it's, it's really a skill. It takes a lot. And even no matter how many birds you've listened to, um, Still can, can get it wrong. So um, jumping into our next question, one thing we don't talk a lot about um, but does play a significant factor, but we, we also don't think about it a lot while we're hunting, especially in Washington where we have water um, mm-hmm. in a lot of places. You know, How does water affect your turkey hunt? It's, it's different than an elk in a wallow or you know, elk that need to go to water every day. Turkeys can get it in different places, but they also will use um, you know, water for different reasons, for feed, for green up. Um, what do you, how do you think about water in relation to spring turkey hunting? And, uh, you know, I've, I've killed birds in like proximity to water in Texas and places where you're like, I think they're going there to drink, but I use it more, you know, cause we, a lot of the States I hunt, you'll get a turkey season that opens up and you might get snow. I mean, you, and so the wetlands are full, you know, and those birds do not like getting their feet wet unless they have a real good reason. So if they're if they're just traveling point A to B and scratching or whatever, they're going to avoid water. And so I, I I spend a lot of time setting up blinds, especially for my daughters, where I'm like, there's a swamp here and there's a cattail slough there, and this is the high ground. I mean, kind of like you do with deer. And, you know, they don't always do it. Sometimes they'll fly across, but if they can walk, they can. And so, I mean, water water's a factor in a lot of stuff. And then, I mean, I've seen this too, and I, I don't really know what's going on, but it's almost like there's a little microclimate around that water first, you know? So it, when you don't have anything else green in the woods, sometimes you can go and, and see turkeys scratching up on the edges of water. Yeah. It's like they're they're finding something there yeah. that they're keying on. And so there's a, you know, you, you might look at it and go, well, they're just walking around this edge. They're not, if you watch them. Or, you, you know, you might think, oh, they're going down there to drink. Well, they got water everywhere. Yeah. And so there's there's things like that yeah i think i think the um the amount of bugs around that water too you watch them out there bugging as they're feeding in the middle of the day i think they there's just a lot more bugs near the water than maybe away from the water you know if we're talking about like the same feed in comparison so they may be going down there getting into better food you know better bugging area for them to feed um but yeah so you're basically saying you can treat that water as almost not necessarily a funnel but it almost condenses them to like a more narrow uh, path like their routine is going to be a tighter path because they're not going to want to be in the swamp they're not going to want to be next to the water um, so you're going to kind of choke them down to some of these areas so they can maintain the high ground it's absolutely a funnel i mean and it, and this is you know this is another crazy theory too when you talk about you know bugs in water um, i do a lot of duck photography in the spring and i'll watch hawks set up and you know you you think like nothing out there eats toads right like you might have a dog that'll gum a toad up and salivate for a while and I'll watch certain hawks fly in and just key in on those toads and pick them up. And I always watch those turkeys work in those swamp edges. I'm like, are they, they I, you yeah. know, they'd grab a frog. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. they would. And yeah. I'm like, are they keying on? It probably sounds so stupid, but I'm like, there's something there. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really look like they're catching something, but if it was cold enough, it probably wouldn't be that, you know, probably wouldn't look that crazy. Yeah. yeah. And so then towards later season is some of these, you know, wetlands and areas dry up, then you almost lose your advantage. You know, the advantage you had of necking them down or funneling them is because now they've got, you know, basically more real estate that they're, they're not afraid to, to walk through or, or that green ups changing, right? The green up used to be on the edge here. Well, now the edge is receded back, you know, hundred feet, hundred yards, whatever it is. And so now they, it's basically opened up their path. So early on, you can take advantage of some of those higher water levels and, uh, 
neck them down. So no, that's, that's a, a interesting point there. Um, so one thing that's really hard and, and, and I've tried to rewind my brain when this question kind of came up or, or I was putting it together for you is because once you kind of got your understanding of turkeys, you just kind of know what, what amount of sign is enough. But let's say you're a brand new hunter, you're brand new to turkey hunting. How do you know when you go to scout a property if, if enough sign is there, if that makes any sense? You know, like we've been there enough. We just like, oh, there's enough scat. There's birds gobbling, whatever. But for a new hunter that maybe just doesn't have it figured out yet, you know, there might have been one bird on there a year ago, you know, and, and that's the sign that you see. Um, what would you look at and, and when would you be comfortable enough that there's enough sign on this piece to, to, to hunt it? Uh, it depends how fresh it is. I mean, and you kind of alluded to this earlier. You know, the good thing about spring in most places, you're going to get some rain and you're going to get a fresh, you know, like a clean slate. And, you know, it might only, you might only have to find a fresh set of Tom tracks that you know was made this morning. And that's all you need to set up on that logging road tomorrow. Or, you know, if you haven't had any rain for a while, it's a little drier. And now it's like, okay, I know the sign I'm looking at might be a couple days or a week old. Then you want as much as possible. And so I always try to, it's kind of like with whitetails, like, oh, you know, you find a bunch of rubs, that's great. Like, I want to see what's going on too. So that's like, that's a starting point. So if you go out there and you're in that corner of the cut, you know, cornfield or whatever, and you see some, you know, tracks and some, you know, turkey droppings, you're like, okay, this, this seems like there's a concentration here. If there's a way to back that up with observation, then you win. Yeah. Because now you know. And I mean, you know, the good thing about sign the turkeys lay down is, you know, they did it in the day. So yep. at least you have that to work, but you know, the other thing to do, and I know people, they don't think about this very often, but if you're working, if you're like on a small property, like a lot of us in the Midwest and the East are running trail cameras for turkeys is almost cheating. Like it's, it's crazy how dialed into those patterns you can get them and see with a trail camera. So it's, if you're like, if you're new to it and you're like, I don't know what this, these tracks mean. Like if you have a trail camera, maybe put it out or it's better to go out in glass if you can, because yep. you know, in-person observations way better, but there's ways to just kind of go, okay, now I know what's going on yep. here. Yep. And, and I would consider that question a little bit more like pre pre scouting, right? You're out there February before they're gobbling before maybe they've broken, you know, they're still maybe in their winter flocks, but ideally the, the best way to proof it is boots on the ground. You know, those, those turkeys are going to start gobbling early March, at least where I'm at. Um, you know, they've been gobbling for the last, well, by the time this airs, you know, two months. Um, so you should really go proof it when those birds are there. And, and as they start to break up, you know, into the end of March or middle of March, wherever you're at, um, just go proof that that ground is going to hold turkeys during, you know, the spring. And, and the best way to do that is, is Tony mentioned, you know, put eyes on them, put eyes on the ground, or just go locate on that, you know, go spend a morning there and you're going to know, you know, probably, by the middle of March, if, if there's going to be birds there or not. Yeah. Um, and, and I would say the only thing to be careful with there, you know, scouting big flocks is the easiest and the turkeys are so consistent until you get that real green up where the bugs are really a factor. And then those flocks are when they're done, like they're, they're not flocking up anymore, no matter what comes in and you start to get, you know, by nine, 10 o'clock in the morning when you're sitting out there and you see all those bugs, kind of like when you're fly fishing, like you just know, those birds are keying on that. And so you might have glassed a flock in the cornfield two weeks ago, and if that green up hits hard and it warms up and those bugs are out, they're going to focus on that food source, and it's going to change things change, for you. Yeah, change it up real quick.
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in they got millions of listings across the country from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want land.com isn't just about buying and selling it's about finding a place to hunt fish explore or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets so head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth next conversation so it seems like no matter what we can be you know in prime best managed you know land in kansas we can be in eastern washington where right now i feel like we're in that first 20 years of turkey reintroduction still like they've been there longer but they're still in that like you know, predators haven't got them yet. They're still on the upswing. Um, but it seems like no matter how many birds we're in, every once in a while, every season, you just run into that brick wall. And then sometimes that brick wall of no gobbling will stay up for a day. Sometimes it'll last a couple of days. Um, you know, it's a lot of times triggered by weather. It could be triggered up by them just being hinned up. What's your strategy go to there where you feel like, I just seen a bird, I crow called at him, I owl called at him, I turkey called at him, I cut at him, and the thing doesn't answer. Like, how do you, you know, how do you hunt with, with purpose and with some confidence at that point? Because sometimes I just, you know, I just get super frustrated. Um, but I'm curious, you know, man, I I think, I think the main problem a lot of turkey hunters have is the turkey sounds they've listened to are sounds other turkey hunters make. So they go to YouTube and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but when you listen to wild birds, it's like, 
It's like being around a, a herd of elk. When you listen to how cows call and how they communicate, it's just different than listening to somebody explain it to you. Yep. And when you spend time around turkeys, there's we're, we're so keyed in on the loud noises, right? Like the loud yelping sequence, the, the gobbles, of course. Yep. But when you, when you call in birds, the hens, and they come in close, even toms, there's a language that it almost doesn't stop. And if you don't hear them make it, you don't know how to like, you, you don't know how to work on that. So I'm always, I don't, when I'm out there, I'm way too cocky. I'm like, there isn't a bird I can't call in and there's lots <laughs> yep. of birds I can't yep. call in. Trust me. I met them, but I always look at that and I go, the, the, the bird that won't gobble at me, that's fine. Like I, I, you can still call in those quiet birds and it's, I always like just think of it like there's something I got to figure out with my calling to to win that dude over. And the more this, I mean, this was really like the primary benefit I felt when I bow hunted them for so long was you call in so many hens into your decoys and you get them going and you start going back and forth and they're preening in front of you and you, you're getting an education in the sounds they make when they're interacting with other hens and the sounds they make when there's a tom close and it's just like, you just have more tools in the kit. And so I think, I think a lot of times we go out and we go, well, if I can't shock gobble him, he's call shy or whatever. Or if I throw him that, that sequence of yelps and he, you know, he looks, but he doesn't hit me, then he's not workable. And I'm like, man, you got a lot more things you can do. Yeah. And I think, you know, my thing, you know, you, you would think you hunt pressure birds, right? Like you go down public land and it's always like tied to subtlety, right? Like be quiet, make yeah. soft yelps, scratch a little bit. I find going the other way helps me a lot. Like I, I think a lot of those birds are out there and they go, I've heard these hens yelp and, you know, purr and cluck and do all the little quiet stuff. But when you start getting fired up, especially if you can run two calls or you have a buddy to go back and forth with. Now there's something interesting for them. And I just think a lot of your competition on pressure birds is going the other way. And they're like, I got to, they're not saying much, so I got to be quiet. And man, I usually get real aggressive. And at least then, even if you don't call them in, they'll usually hit you or, or, or change their body language a little bit. And I think that's important, but it's a confidence thing with your calls, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now and so as far as like, do you continue, do you change up anything as far as like running ridges and locating or like, do you, do you maintain like your same path you would take if they were gobbling crazy or do you ever assume that a bird's there just not answering you? Does that affect like, will you, will you do like cold calling setups where you just might set up for tons half hour? If, if things are just slowed way down, you'll just do a cold calling setup and yeah. And you know, I do, a, I do a lot of map work. Like if I'm hunting a big chunk of public land, like I'm like, where, where can I go? People probably aren't going to go it's just like the deer. And I'll do, I'll do a lot of cold calling setups, but it'll be, there'll be a reason behind it. Yeah, like yeah. I'm, I'm here cause I think so. And then I try to give them like two hours and I know people get real impatient if there's no birds going, but man, again, you know, like we talked about before it's proximity and if you've got birds that are covering the countryside, even if they're not making noise and I'm sitting there and I'm working and it's in a spot that has something going for it, you know, half hours, not enough time, 45 minutes isn't enough time. And, you know, I just think about how often you, you know, especially when you're younger and you're, you're just gung ho and you stand up and you walk 20 <laughs> bird, yards, birds flush everywhere yeah, all the time, man. Yeah. And so I, I just try to be like, okay, I'm, 
I'm going to commit to this spot. I'm going to make it comfortable and I'm going to give it, you know, like, and I will tell myself like, you are not leaving here. It's, it's noon. You're not leaving here till two, no so matter you just what. Set your clock to it. There's no, that w- I'm going to jump ahead a few because it's a great segue into patience, which is something I don't have much of, uh, but you have to, I mean, I've, I've learned and, and I've been told by the turkeys, as, as you mentioned multiple times, that patience is one of those things that's actually to your, to your advantage when turkey hunting, um, you know, how long, can you sit still? You know, me just wiggling, you know, 45 minutes into a sit or a minute has cost me birds. Me, you know, thinking I can do something that because there hasn't been any action. So when, aside from you just setting a clock and is it just a gut feel on how long you're going to sit? If the area is like cold versus lukewarm, like maybe you heard a gobble, you know, half hour into the sit. Does that like, can you run us through like when you're going to move aside from just setting your clock to two hours or is it as simple as just I'm going to give this two hours because I think that's the right time or that's how big this area is. Or I, I just have to force myself. And, and this is, this comes from the deer world. Right. And I mean, partially that and bow hunting turkeys where it's like, you know, I've done a lot of dark to dark sits in blinds, bow hunting turkeys, and you get, you know, you might have six hours of downtime and then you look out and there's a Tom coming, you know? And so for me, I think that, you know, one of the things that just kills so many people's success is they're just impatient. And I, I see this, you know, this is in the whitetail space big time, but turkeys, because people, they're visible, people think they're going to go strike one up or they're going to go see one. There's a lot of covering ground and not as much hunting, you know, guys that, you know, you go hunting over the counter unit for elk in Colorado, you know, if, if it's the first week, you, you're probably better off sitting on that water all day, yeah. even though most people can't do it. Right. Yep. And turkeys, I think we just don't give them enough time. And you got to think, you know, sometimes these birds, you know, we, we all love that bird that runs in, right? A lot of them don't, especially when it's greened up and they've had some pressure, they just need time. Yep. And, and the other thing that I've noticed just after doing it a lot, no matter how brushy we, it is, I, I feel like I've got like better than normal uh, eyesight and can pick things up that are unnatural. And, and we've had birds coming in where I know there's a bird within 80 or 90 yards and I can't pick the dang thing up. And you know, that little head's bobbing around. And so it's like, be patient, don't move, only move when you, you know, when, when you absolutely know, cause we've all taken those risks, like getting our gun up or turning where we think the bird's going to come. Um, and, and you know, that kind of tags on to the patience of time, but it's like, they're so good, and it's it, it, it seeing you, seeing movement, seeing any of that, that you know, being patient, only moving when you can um, is going to be to your advantage because, like you said, I've, I've flushed birds by getting up after a half hour. I've, I've got birds to run away because I've you know, moved my knee at the wrong time. Um, yeah, patience goes a long way when turkey hunting. And uh, you know, being, just being comfortable. I, that was one thing me and Jordan talked about last, last week on the podcast was um, – becoming as comfortable as you can um under the tree we've actually went to using foldable like low sitting chairs just because we can sit there for hours and not have to move and it's it's um as stupid as a little chair would seem um has probably upped my odds you know 50 percent on those long calling just because i'm more willing to sit there for for long sits yeah you got to be comfortable yeah i mean if you need to pop out a little blind or whatever so important yep if you if it'll keep you there yep yep for sure um so I want to talk about patterning off the roost. Um, back when I was younger, uh, maybe a little more bloodthirsty. One thing: every morning we needed to kill the turkeys that we sat up on. You know, we we sat up on those, so we would literally chase those turkeys until we bumped them or killed them. It seemed like every time. And so one thing is, we're getting older, is more patterning off the roost. If you have time available within the hunt, you know, you have five six more days. Um, 
do you ever pattern off the roost? Like these birds sat here, they went this way. I'm going to take that as a learning day. I'm going to leave them alone. I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to shadow them, but I'm never going to get close enough to bump them and then use that against them on the following day and, and how important that can be, you know, for your success, especially on public ground where you're, you're finding, you know, maybe not as many birds as you want. And that's really your only play all the time. I mean, that's, I'm a scouter man and I, I like observation. And so if I, and that, I mean, again, that's kind of the patience thing. If you, if you have to sandbag a day, a day to kind of watch them and that's so hard to do with turkeys cause you yep. can always yep. move in on them. But like I said, you know, if you see them do something, as long as it, you know, the conditions don't drastically change or somebody comes in there and blows it up, they're going to do it tomorrow. And I, I think, you know, when you talk about patterning off the roost, I mean, that's, you know, that guys were preaching about that in Alabama 50 years ago, right? That's like kind of old school advice. I take it way further and I go, can you pattern them throughout the day? The day yeah. You know, cause a lot of times they're not that killable off the roost. They're not, I, I shouldn't say that they're not that callable off the roost because they're going to be following those hens and they're going to play that game till nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. And then you start getting a window on a lot of birds and so, yeah, it's great to know where they're going to start and where they're going to end up. Super valuable. But if you also know where they end up at noon or, you know, 10 in the morning or two in the afternoon, then you're really putting something together. Yep. Yeah. And we used to, like I said, you, I would, for some reason, justify the decision we would make that I think we can crawl to this point and cross that fence there. And then we'll catch back up to them and kill that bird. Right. Cause we've watched them all morning versus, I think as we've if we as I've grown up as a turkey hunter, like well they walked by that little pinch point on the ridge meadow or whatever it may be, you know they walked by there. They're most likely to do it tomorrow. Let's just go back and have a sandwich or go try to locate some other birds that we haven't, you know, we may not screw up and then go and kill that bird tomorrow because chances are, you know, as long as they don't get bumped and you know, not crazy weather, wind switches, they're going to be back in that same area. Versus me trying to justify how I'm going to crawl through a field and uh, go kill that bird when you know chances are under a, a, a percent you know before we before we do it do that but that's a rite of passage when you're yeah. when you're starting out you're gonna you're gonna get too close a lot and there's nothing there's like no easier way to blow up a hunt than getting too close to the roost in the morning yeah. like it just it's hard man yep um so another great segue into cutting the distance you know the name of the podcast and it's one of those things is you know, to cut the distance, there's two ways it can be accomplished. One, you either have the bird cut the distance or you use your own feet to cut the distance. Um, I feel that cutting the distance um, as a turkey hunter is maybe, you know, the highest level of achievement as far as like woodsmanship goes. Um, you know, yeah, they can't smell you so you can approach from any direction. But as far as like getting caught, needing to use terrain, vegetation to your advantage and not getting picked off, is is as tough as it gets while you're wild turkey hunting especially since there's multiple eyes but um in your opinion like how close do you want to be before you start your calling um and you may have to add some um context to that as far as you know vegetation and what it allows but what's your idea like always closer the better but but what's that like magic circle to that bird you know i i i think like you know, 75 to a hundred yards is like red zone for a Turkey. Like, I think if you can get into that range, I mean, I've had so many times, not, not a ton, but I've, I've killed quite a few birds in my life where I heard them or I knew they were there and I got into as close as I was like, this is, this is as much as I'm going to risk it. 
and I'll scratch out a spot to sit and that's enough. I mean, they're coming because you're just, you're there, you know, and it's, so for me, it's, it's, you know, pretty close, but you know, if you get to 75 yards on a bird and you, especially early season, you're in trouble a lot of times. And so it kind of depends if it's early or late and I'm, I'm not huge on pushing it too much. You know, like if I know there's a bird there and I think I can work him, I don't need to be super close. And so I would say just kind of, again, be a little bit cautious, but sometimes the terrain lets you get right there. You know, I mean, I killed a bird in Nebraska a few years ago with my bow it was just strutting his ass off on a ridge top, and he was I couldn't get him down to where I was and I got up there and I got real close to that bird because I had a quiet way to get up there and I called him over that ridge because I was like 20 yards away before I made a peep and then you know you're I mean you're talking a little soft yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, you know like real quiet. you're not gonna blow his ears out here yeah. but for that bird to walk over and look you know and if you can get to like 50 yards on him even you know especially if you're gun hunting, man, they're gonna give you your look. Like you're, you're going to get your chance, but you better be ready. Yep. Um, is there ever a situation where you feel like stalking the turkey is the right answer versus setting up and trying to call? Have you ever, you know, I, I've killed birds that way. Um, I, I don't like it. I mean, it's just, you can do it, you know? Um, I just love calling them. Yeah. You know, I, I love, I love that part of the process. And so that's, that's part of the reason I bow hunt them so much is it's such an accomplishment to me to just get them. Yeah. Like my decoys are seven yards away and I want them, I want them to buy the whole thing, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, you can do it, but it's, you know, especially when you're out West and they're super visible, like that's a, that's a possibility. But if you want to, if you want to really enjoy turkey hunting, you learn how to call. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love calling them, but there was, there was one bird where I had just got my ass whipped all morning, right? We were on six or seven setups. I had lost a couple decoys because I didn't want to go grab them while I was still trying to stay with the birds. And, you know, they had one of those nasty old boss hens that just drug them away from our setup every time. And um, as much as I'd rather call them in, like there was something satisfying about, you know, a flock of, I think it was 14 or 15 birds. And I enjoyed it. But yeah, on public ground, it's always a little bit dangerous. Yep. Um, You know, you're, you're, and, uh, but yeah, it's it's definitely a different challenge. But but I think I'm like you. I'd rather call them in, and and that leads me to my next question. We we talk a lot about calling birds on, on cutting distance, but can you kind of roll through kind of your calling system? Like, is there a, a strategy you've mentioned in the past? You know, on on public land, sometimes you'll actually do the opposite of what you think, call out, or if you're hunting private birds, like just kind of go through um, your your calling system if there is one. Or um, so it. I like to, unless I, unless I know where the birds are and I know the birds I'm working are, you know, they're 300 yards away or whatever. It, let's just say if I'm running and gunning and, and I set up in a spot, or I stop at a spot. I'm like, yeah, this is a spot. I'm always going to check them real quiet, like real soft yelps, a little bit of purring maybe just to see, you know, cause a lot of times you might not get a Tom to gobble, but you'll get a hen to respond. And so they, I mean, they almost always give you a courtesy yelp, right? So not to stop you here real quick. So even if you think you're a couple hundred yards away, you're going to go to turkey calls versus using your locators anymore. Or or like, that's one thing I still struggle with is we think there's a bird here. I almost want to know where he's at again. Do you go to your turkey calls now or do you go to your locators? I don't, I go to my turkey calls turkey mostly. Calls. Um, if I'm if I'm in a situation where I'm moving and there, there's times where I'm going to use a locator a lot. But if I'm just going through a say it's the dead time in the morning and I, I, I don't have much going on, if I find a place where I'm like, I, I want to set up here, right? For whatever reason, this, this is the spot and I'm committed to it already, 
I'm going to set up and I'm going to start soft and you know, I'll, I'll ramp it up if I don't get a response after a while, but almost every calling sequence that I have that that's a cold call, I'm, I'm starting off soft just in case. And then I never leave without doing a locator, you know, one, one more. Yeah. Just going away. <laughs> yeah. Just because, you know, like you don't know, man, like that, he might not hit anything you make and that crow caller, that owl hoop might get him or, uh, you know, you gobble on them depending on where you're at gobble with a mouth call or whatever. But yeah, it just depends. But I always, I always just assume like maybe there's one close and I want to like, I want to know it, even if it's just a lone hen or something, I want to know they're there before I really ramp it up. So are you, are you under the, the idea that you just kind of feed him what he likes? Um, are you going to start with real soft clucks and purrs and then kind of graduate? Are you going to always go to our seven to, you know, we talked about the seven to nine note Yelp. Like, is there, you know, we always talk about levels of threat when we're elk hunting, you know, we're, we go in there, we don't necessarily want to, we do at times depending on the bull's demeanor leading up to that. But you know, we may rip his head off right off the bat, or we may like, let's try a cow call, see if he hooks on that. And then if not, let's try an excited cow call. And if that doesn't work, maybe we'll do like a little moaning bugle, you know, and you kind of run these progressions because there is times um, no matter how much we get, uh, you know, we get accused of bugling too much and too aggressively. Well, there are some progressions we run. Um, kind of what's your thought there? Are you going to just kind of start at like the lowest level or are you just going to read the situation or what's the first peep coming out of your mouth and how do you decide kind of? I, I start quiet, but I don't stay there very long. And if, you know, especially if I've got a bird, I'm like that bird's hot or I've got a hen that's responding. When I get a hen to respond, I go after her hard. Um, I don't, I'm not a, I, I get after it. Like I, yeah. I, I like, you know, cause we always think like, you know, softer is always better. And I, I do like to start that way, but I like to have a conversation with them. And I think you, ha- I think you can turn them on, you know, like yeah. I think you get those birds that, yeah, they'll respond. But if you're, you know, three or five yelps and you're done or, you know, just, just soft stuff. Like they're like, yeah, that's what turkeys do when they're not really doing anything. But you know, like you mentioned that, you know, boss hen leading that gobbler away. Like my favorite thing is when I get that hen to talk to me and I can piss her off. Just stomp on her. And yeah. If over. you get that hen, if you get a hen that's, that's angry and she starts cutting, you're going to get a bird fired up. Yep. Like there's, there's nothing better out there. And it, you know, I, I really learned this hunting fall birds because hens get real territorial in the fall and they'll come in and chest bump decoys. I mean, you see it in the spring too, yep. but it's real common in the fall for them to get territorial over food sources. And man, when you get them going and they're pissed, the the world changes. And so, I mean, if you have a live hen doing it, that's great, but you can do that. I mean, I can do that with a, a mouth call and a, and a pod call. Yep. And, you know, you can do it with a box call too, but you can make that like confrontation happen and Tom's just freaking love it. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Like, there's nothing better than when you get a tom hooked on cutting, because then you know, like, you're at the, you know, you can just be as aggressive as possible, and you know, when they gobble every cut, you're just like, the game's too easy. I don't want to say too easy at that point, but it's that it's way better than the bird where you're like, all right, he doesn't answer clucks, he doesn't answer a, a yelp. He, you know, it's like you're trying to figure out what's going to work, and maybe you know nothing does. But I'm I'm similar. You kind of start slow, but as, you know, you run through your four or five different progressions, and if none of them hook you run back through them loud and then if nothing hooks you're just like all right i don't know what to do or it's going to be a real tough bird to call in but yeah i think similar to you we go loud real quick um and and i mean but you're you're also at like a huge advantage if you can see them right you know because i mean you see this a lot where you know that especially like alone times you see this a lot where they'll come out in the field 
they're scratching, you know, they'll throw you some struts, gobbles, whatever. Like they're, they're kind of doing the thing, but you can tell it's probably not the bird you want to just go after. He can see your decoys. He can hear you. And I, I go the opposite way with a bird like that. If I can watch him where then I do a lot of soft purring and clucking and just like little hen chatter back and forth where it's, you know, if you're gun hunting, it's different with bow hunting. Cause a lot of times they won't commit right to the decoys but you'll get that drive by yep. and it, they'll be in gun range. And it's one of those things that just kind of like, it kind of just like pulls them closer where they're, it's not that typical run in and just yep. make it happen. But they're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to get yep. closer to you ladies just cause. Yep. And and that's, we get asked quite a bit, like when do you just stop calling you? Know, Cause you hear a lot of, you know, that's just as, in my opinion, sometimes just as uh, valuable as the calling, especially turkeys. And and I use that no calling is when you've got a turkey that's not super fired up, not super interested, but it seems like he's closed some distance. I'll I'll just go to like set, similar to you. I'll set my watch for fifteen minutes. He obviously knows exactly what tree I'm under. When he gets to a certain spot, he's going to be able to see my decoys. One thing I have to do is just make sure my gun's kind of pointed in the somewhat right direction because um, he's going to probably be silent um, as I'm silent. But yeah, you either be quiet and then either one, he'll come all the way in silent or he gets he gets a little bit frustrated, maybe five, seven, ten minutes into that wait and he'll finally gobble again. And then it seems like you can get him fired up after that versus like just giving him. And so that's kind of when I'll use that silent treatment is when I think I got something semi-interested, kind of knows where we're at. There's not a lot more calling needed. He's either going to come or not and then um, just go quiet for a little bit. Yeah, that, that bird that lets you know he's there and is just doesn't feel workable. You just got to let it breathe for a yep. while. And, you know, I mean, sometimes they come in, sometimes they don't, but sometimes in that situation, all it takes is another bird somewhere else. You know, I mean, it's, you see this a lot on a field edge where you're calling to that, that bird and he's strutting, he's not coming. He can, he can see the decoys. He's like, <laughs> yeah. you, you guys can see me. And then, you know, two Jakes walk out in the other corner. Or some, you know, something changes the dynamic and then all of the sudden, you know, like now he's callable, but that is a, you know, learning that like you can't, like you could tell people that like, oh, you got to take a break. Like that's like just an experience thing. Yep. Yep. Have to put it through, through a lot of time. Like you say, just, just let it breathe is sometimes going to, going to get the, the, that, that turkey fired up even more. In closing, uh, what is one tip you would give uh, a turkey hunter to help them find success this this uh, spring? As far as like, you know, an idea, a theme, um, you know, calling, uh, you know, perseverance, whatever it may be. You know, I would. We talked a lot about scouting, but I I, I honestly think what makes turkey hunters is just confidence with the calls. And so I would say I think everybody should know how to use a mouth call just cause and you know whatever people have their preferences but i would say if nothing else figure out how to yelp well with something you know and it i like you know i like mouth calls for a lot of reasons um but i would say learn something learn that like you don't have to you know purrs clucks whatever like you don't have to do you can kill a lot of birds just yelping but you gotta know how to do it and it's it is not a sound when you listen to somebody yelp it, you know it's like a two note sound and people listen to other callers and it's like too fast the cadence is just a little off yeah. and they're not breaking that that note right like it's just like a one note too fast cadence 
and it's unnatural. But it, yeah. you know, if you listen to somebody do it, it's like, okay, well, it doesn't. It sounds like a turkey, whatever. Then you listen to a real turkey, yep. and you go, okay, they're a lot slower, and there's like a real distinct break in each yelp. Yeah. And I say, just like master that as best you can. Work on it in your truck when you're driving, whatever. Because once you get that confidence, you're going to call in more birds. You're going to hear them make real sounds, and you're just going to your your vocabulary is going to expand. Yep. But it, you got to have that confidence first. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. So, uh, Tony, how can people find out more about you? How they can they follow along with what you're doing? Yeah, they can, uh, you know, head on over to Instagram at Tony J Peterson and, you know, I'm a meat eater full-timer. So all of my stuff is at the meat um, writing tons of, <laughs> tons of Turkey articles right now. Perfect. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of good information out there. Yeah. yeah we'll really appreciate you having on here or having you on here today. Um, a wealth of information, both whitetail and uh, obviously Turkey. So yeah, we got to really talk Turkey that. or we got to talk whitetails. Buddy. We are, we're going to have, we're going to get you dialed up here for a, a whitetail episode for sure. Awesome. Thanks right. man. Thanks a lot, Tony. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.